Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. No good martinis today, so I hope you enjoyed those that we had in abundance earlier in the week. We have bad, bad, and crazy martinis uh, for conservatives today. And uh, Jim, let's start with one that just seems to be a record on repeat, and that is this administration's insistence on getting back to the Iran nuclear deal. And it's not just getting back. Uh, According to John Solomon and others, it's actually going to be even worse. And it seems that this administration is really intent on getting it done this year. I don't know if they expect a Republican Congress to, to push back. Of course, when Obama made the deal, the Congress was Republican, but needing two thirds, I think it was to stop Uh, the deal from taking place, which is exactly the opposite of what the Constitution asked for. But uh, in addition to uh, getting back into an agreement, according to John Solomon, the U.S. is going to be offering much more robust sanctions relief compared to last time. And if you remember the cash on the pallets, that's not exactly a very encouraging situation. What we do have, though, is uh, the U.S. expected to abrogate multiple Trump-era executive orders, which will lift sanctions on dozens of individuals and entities without congressional review. Uh, Most notably, the Biden administration would likely end an executive order which imposed sanctions on the Iranian Supreme Leader's office and a host of Iranian officials accused of terrorism and human rights abuses. Meanwhile, as far as we can tell, the inspections regime has got as many massive holes in it as it did before. But nonetheless, Ned Price uh, over there at the State Department saying this is going to be robust. And if Iran were ever attempting to violate the deal, uh, we would know. Here's what he said. Well, again, it's quite simple. We wouldn't trust Iran. Uh, This is a deal that is predicated uh, on the most rigorous, uh, the most restrictive and intensive verification and monitoring regime ever negotiated. This would be about IAEA inspectors on the ground uh, able to look at sites that were of interest. This would be about uh, monitoring cameras, other technology uh, that would see to it uh, that Iran Iran was living up to uh, its side of the deal. If Iran If we were to get back into this deal and if Iran were to attempt to violate it, we would know that and we would be able to respond accordingly. Jim, I don't know if these people are Pollyanna or they're just trying to convince us (laughs) that that they know what they're doing here. But uh, whatever the, the motivation is here, we're headed down another stupid road from this administration because they insist on going in this direction when it's got no value. First of all, yes, listeners, we know you like it when we have good martinis and we try to find them every day, but sometimes they don't and we have to have bad days like this one. We had a pretty good run and it's come to a screeching halt. Um, I, I keep coming back like, who is this deal meant to serve? Who Who is this meant to please or placate? Because it certainly doesn't please or placate the Israelis who see it as a giant giveaway and seeds way too much to them. It's never polled well. It's never been something that the American people have been clamoring for the administration or the Obama administration to trust the Iranians more. There's some enthusiasm in Europe, but not a ton. And I think most Europeans look at Iran's record. Um, I, I really do sometimes think as if this entire major foreign policy effort of the Biden administration is an effort to spite the Obama administration's critics and Trump for undoing the deal. You know, as you mentioned, the assassination attempts that they've actually executed here, the uh, attack on Rushdie, 
Uh, it's not like they've stopped sponsoring terrorism. It's not like they've stopped chanting death to America. Like All of the issues that were obstacles to getting this approved by Congress back in the Obama years are not only still there, they've all gotten worse. And you're kind of left scratching your head saying, what does the Biden administration see to make them say, oh, you know what, this, this, we, we can get a good deal here. And they keep insisting that they don't trust the Iranians. And yet they keep insisting that we absolutely have to keep negotiating with them. Which like, wait, why, you know, if I don't trust someone, I don't negotiate with them. I don't try to reach a deal with them. Even if you want to do the, well, there's more verification in this one. Look, you couldn't inspect military sites in the old deal. You're not going to be able to do it in this one. It just seems like that, you know, like for Obama, you could see the yearning for the second Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, remember, he got the first one based on potential. But the idea is like, oh, my real legacy is going to be. You know, all these years after the Iranian hostage crisis, I'm going to restore normal relations with Iran and we're going to get that. And it's pretty, you know, like if, if the Iranians, if there was any indication that the Iranians genuinely wanted to do that, I'd be open to that. Um, I did not necessarily oppose Trump trying to have summits with Kim Jong-un, although I think you could say, you know, now say they really went nowhere. Yeah, we had tried everything else with North Korea. All right. You want to sit down? You want to have a face-to-face meeting? You want to have a summit? Let's give it a try. Although I would point out that we criticized Barack Obama when he said in a primary back in you know 2007, 2008, that he would meet without preconditions with a whole bunch of foreign dictators. But you know what? Sometimes you got to try. There's nothing we've seen from the Iranian regime that indicates they're moderating or they're becoming more reasonable or they're becoming less interested in having a nuclear weapon or anything like that. There's just nothing there. And yet the Biden administration keeps continuing full speed ahead. And it reminds me of the old joke of the person who's, you know, digging through the pile of horse manure because somewhere there's got to be a pony in here. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, The Foundation for Defense of Democracy shows that the New Deal would give Iran access to $274 billion in its first year and at least $1 trillion by the year 2030. So, uh, Jim, I mean, we've got coalitions taking sides in the Middle East, I thought, as a result of the Abraham Accords, you know, that uh, the, the people who were afraid of a nuclear Iran were the, the right side to be on. I still think that's obviously correct. I think that's one of the great successes of the Trump administration. And I think you're right. Uh, this is all about rescuing the alleged legacy of Barack Obama, because taking sides with Iran in the region makes no sense whatsoever. All right, let's move on to our second bad martini now. And uh, the government is always at its most dangerous when it's trying to mandate uh, what it wants you to do. And unfortunately for Democrats at the national level, they get their worst ideas from Democrats in California. So it's always valuable to pay attention to what uh, Democrats in California want to happen. And this is what they want to happen with your transportation soon. According to CBS News, California uh, has a goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles. The plan is known as CARB, Advanced Clean Cars 2 and requires all vehicles sold after 2035 to be zero emission. The regulation would operate in phases with the amount of gas-powered vehicles on the road decreasing over time. 35% of new passenger vehicles sold would need to be powered by batteries or hydrogen in 2026. 51% by 2028. That's not that long from now. 68% by 2030 and 100% by 2035. In addition to these targets for regular passenger cars, the plan outlines a goal to have zero emission medium and heavy duty vehicles by the year 2045. So 
Jim, California already has its own climate rules as compared to the rest of the country. Uh, but you can tell from what Biden and, and Democrats in Washington want to do, especially his environmental team, this is exactly the road they're going down. It's going to lead to really expensive things. Uh, they're going to throw tax credits in there like they are doing supposedly with this uh, this mansion plan, but the, the cost of the cars just then go up. And so they're forcing people into these electric vehicles, which, as we have talked about many, many times, are not ready for prime time. So two days ago in the morning, Jolt, I did a rare occurrence of praising Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, because he wants to keep Diablo Canyon, the state's lone remaining nuclear power plant, to continue to operate. I suppose I think it's supposed to one of the reactor is supposed to be shut down in late 2024, the other one in early 2025. And Gavin Newsom has looked at the energy needs of his state. This power plant produces about 9%, you know, close to 10% of all the electricity used in the state of uh, California. And Newsom's realized we have to keep this open. We we are not going to have enough to generation from alternative sources to make up for it. Now, it's worth noting, you know, California's got a lot of alternative energy. At one point in this earlier this year, they managed to get 100% of their energy use was coming from alternative sources. But these things are always variable. Your level of demand is always changing as more people turn on their air conditioners or turn on their computers and things like that. And the amount of energy that's coming from solar panels, for example, depends on how much how much sun is shining. The amount of electricity coming from windmills depends on how much the wind is blowing. And so all of these, you know, happy goo-goo images of, you know, solar panels and windmills, you know, they only work when the environmental conditions are right. Um, if you like hydroelectric power, that's great, but you can only do it where there are mountains and waterfalls. And some parts of California have them, but large sections of the state don't have that. And you don't really have the circumstances to do that. So Gavin Newsom, you know, who, who will tout himself as an environmentalist as much as anybody else in the country, looked at it and figured out, you know, my state needs nuclear power, at least for a little, at least for a while. Maybe someday we can shut this down. But in fact, he really wanted to look at the options. Could they keep it going into the 2030s? Yes, there's been a little bit of a population loss in California in the last year or two. We joke that everybody's moving to Texas and it seems like every uh, big California tech business is relocating to Austin and things like that. But all in all, particularly when you look at illegal immigration, you look at all the factors driving people to move into California, the need for electricity, the need for energy is not going to go anywhere. So I think when you look at you know our, our reduction in our carbon emissions and things like that that have occurred naturally back under the Trump administration, the allegedly bad Trump administration, you can look at it and say, okay, people will choose the more environmental choice when it works for them and when it is competitive compared to traditional energy sources. We know that energy, you know, I, I, at least in Northern Virginia, it feels like Teslas are everywhere. They're also really quiet, which means I've been nearly hit by a car more often than by uh, you know, other gas guzzling cars and things like that. But for people to really fall in love with electric cars, it's got to meet all of their needs. And sometimes it does, particularly if you're just kind of driving around a very heavily urban area. But if you want to go on road trips, if you want to go from one place to another uh, over a great distance, you need to know where the electric charging stations are. And as we talked about that, you know, very funny, but also very dark Wall Street Journal article, one, a whole bunch of places that say the charging, uh, they have charging ports aren't working. Apparently, there's all kinds of software issues, all kinds of electric cars. Look, maybe this author had a, a lemon, uh, but basically, sometimes the batteries drain faster than they expect to. Basically, if you never want to go on a road trip, then an electric car probably works well for you. 
If you do, then you'd better either you don't want to get one or you want to get a hybrid or you want to get one of the real top of the line models. Uh, this was a, you know, below mid market uh, uh, electric car example. So people will make that choice when they're better. And also, if you really want to do more to promote the infrastructure for the recharging stuff, if you want to figure out a way to make the batteries recharge faster, then you'll get maybe more people to do it. But California doesn't want to do this. California wants to simply take away options from you. They want to force you to buy an electric car. They want to make it no longer able to do that. This is, by the way, this is a wildly unrealistic one. And the great irony is, is that I do I think that the day will come when the majority and perhaps the overwhelming majority of cars sold in America are electric? Yeah, I can see that happening. It's not going to happen for at least a decade, maybe two decades, and who knows, maybe three or four decades. But we'll probably get there. But the whole point is that you can't make this happen by forcing people to buy something that they don't want to buy. If these cars really were as good as the environmentalists claim, people would be buying them, or I should say they'd be buying them if they could afford them, because the good models are significantly more expensive uh, than the traditional gasoline-powered cars. And that, by the way, like people say, oh, you're going to save so much money on, on gasoline if you if you get an electric car. Yeah, but you need 60 grand to buy one, to buy one of the good ones. You know, of course, people are going to be interested in that. It's just not a realistic financial option for them. But hey, what does Jennifer Granholm know? <laughs> she doesn't know how to be governor of Michigan, and she doesn't know how to be secretary of energy, that's for sure. Now, so much of what she said, Jim, is right. I would also add that if people were being honest, uh, these vehicles are worse for the environment than the existing internal combustion engines because of all the strip mining necessary to, to get the elements that uh, are required to put these batteries together. And then when the batteries are no longer useful, you know, they put them into the landfills or wherever and uh, they, they don't uh, they don't deteriorate the way that environmentalists would like. Let's not even get into the slave labor necessary to get those uh, minerals out of places in southern Africa and so forth. Uh, but you're totally right about the road trips. You know, we just took about a 2000 mile plus road trip to go see my family in Michigan and some other folks and sites along the way. And, you know, the idea of having to stop every 300 miles or so and, and stop for half an hour or an hour to, to charge up again would have really been a total nuisance. And then to have that on a massive scale because gasoline isn't even an option anymore would be a total nightmare. Imagine all the different uh, charging stations you would need. Then as we were headed towards the lovely Mackinac Straits on our way back, there was construction on the two lane road. So there's a massive backup because one of the, the lanes was being worked on. And so you had to uh, share the one lane. So one side would come one way for a while and then the other side would go the other way for a while. And we were stopped for about an hour after about three hours on the road or so. You know, we weren't that far from the next town, but we didn't know that construction was coming. And what happens if you get stuck there? It's like Virginia in the winter last year. You're screwed. You're totally out of luck. So uh, there's a long way to go before this stuff is even remotely considered competitive, uh, in my estimation. Yeah. And, you know, one kind of comparable anecdote. When you drive a gasoline powered car, you just kind of take, you know, take for granted that, even, okay, you're running a little low, there's a gas station at the next exit, right? You know, in most interstate highways, you've got rest stops all along the way. They have little blue signs by the side of the road telling you how far away they are. Things are going to be fine. Or, you know, you, you know you're going to be okay. If it's electric, you don't know if it's, you know, one, you don't know how far it is. You got to look on a map or maybe use an app or something like that. Then you got to figure out, you know, how long is it going to take to recharge. And then thirdly, as described by this woman, um, you get there and it's out of order and it's, it's not recharging or something. There's some tech issue. In France, we rented a car. We're driving around northern France, and there are two. There are apparently like eight or eight or nine different types of gasoline in France. The car that we had, a Peugeot, 
required E5 or E10, if I'm remembering correctly. So like, okay, you know, so we're getting there and we're getting a little bit low and, you know, because it's a new kind of car, we're not really sure if when it gets to the red part, does it mean you should start thinking about refueling or does it mean you're going to run out of gas any second now? I'm looking on the map. I find a gas station along the side of the road. Oh, by the way, in France, they're not nearly as gas stations don't, at least where we were driving, it didn't seem nearly as ubiquitous uh, as it does here in the United States. But we find one. It's a toll road. We go off the toll road. We get into the rest stop. And not, it's apparently it's a trucker rest stop. And none of the pumps had E5 or E10. This led to some strong disagreements between Mrs. Garrity and myself. <laughs> And I will simply lay out to the listeners, how was I supposed to know that certain gas stations do not have the kind of gas that we need? An utterly unnecessary uh, headache as far as I'm... This is the equivalent of like going to a gas station and finding out, yeah, we only have diesel. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so we had to get back on the road. Thankfully, we found one. Everything worked out just fine. But one of the things that makes us a mobile country is that if you have a car and it runs on gasoline, you know, unless you're out in like the you know, the, the sparsely populated, you know, Western states, you're almost always near a gas station. Now, you may not like the price at the gas station. Or you may not like, you know, one gas station against another or something like that. Or maybe there's even a line. But chances are, once you get into a gas station, you know, you ever waited more than like maybe five, 10 minutes if there's a line, you know, it, for an electric car, that's not the case. And that simply doesn't work for a lot of people. And until environmentalists confront that fact, they're just, you know, the demand is always going to be limited because there are people who need to get to where they need to get to go. And they don't have a few hours to spare to have their car recharging. Yeah, very well said. Yeah, sounds like we both had some, <laughs> some challenges on the recent vacations. But yeah, without the option of fuel, that would have been a total mess, certainly for us. And it sounds like possibly for you as well. It's a restriction on our freedom of movement. Uh, and and I think that alone should be enough to fight it. But the, the cost, the mandate, uh, the actual toll on the environment, uh, all argue against this stuff. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now, and it's follow-up on yesterday's bad martini, and that was, of course, uh, Joe Biden, with power that seems awfully murky to just unilaterally forgive up to $10,000 in student loan debt for individuals making less than $125,000 a year or couples making less than a quarter million dollars a year, $20,000 relief from Pell Grant recipients, and just their inability to explain this with any coherence is... Not surprising, especially coming from Biden, but you'd think with all the ramp up to this over the past year and a half uh, that they would at least come up with something. But they can't because they know it's ridiculous. You've, you're passing along other people's bills to people who didn't take out the loans. And that's just morally and economically wrong. But uh, Biden yesterday in announcing this at the White House was asked by ABC's Karen Travers, is this unfair to people who paid their student loans or chose not to take out loans? Here's the exchange as Biden was leaving the room. The president, is this unfair to people who paid their student loans or chose not to take out loans? Is it fair to people who, in fact, uh, do not own multi-billion dollar businesses that she want these guys give them all the tax breaks? Is that fair? What do you think? So a total, total non sequitur there. I'm not sure how people who paid their loans or chose not to take out loans somehow lead us to a conversation about people who own multi-billion dollar businesses. But Miguel Cardona, the education secretary, can't answer the questions either. The basic questions. He was on with John Berman of CNN, certainly not a hostile interview, with two basic questions. How much is this going to cost? How's it going to be paid for? And Cardona tries to escape the questions and has no good answers. Listen. How much does this cost? You know, the projections are still uh, coming out depending on how many people uh, take advantage of it. 
But let me remind folks. What's the range, about three Mr. Months, Secretary? What's the, what's the range of possibilities? Well, like I said, um, those projections are still coming out based on how many people take advantage of it. But what we're finding is when the loan payments restart, $4 billion a month is going to go back into it because people are going to start paying. Anyone making over $125,000 will resume payment into their loans. And it does offset whatever uh, funds are being placed to help those who are most severely in need um, to get on their feet again. Well, OK, it won't offset the total cost of this over over time. I mean, how will this be paid for? Look, the president has been very clear about uh, reducing the deficit. And there are projections, not just from our department, but Moody's, for example, are saying that whatever funds go to this loan forgiveness will be offset by the increase in uh, what we're seeing in loan payment restart for those making under over 125,000. So concerns about inflation should really be tampered because it, it does offset. Meanwhile, Jim, uh, the original price tag, $300 billion over 10 years. Now the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, whatever that's worth, says it could be more like $500 billion, And that's assuming that more loan, quote unquote, forgiveness, meaning transfers, uh, doesn't happen going forward. So what do you make of what we saw yesterday from, from Biden and this administration's uh, clueless approach here? Well, first on the cost, uh, $500 billion would then be roughly $200 billion more than the alleged deficit and debt reduction from the inf so-called Inflation Reduction Act. So it took them like two weeks to go, poof, we have taken away all of the reduction. And oh, by the way, that reduction was projected over a 10-year period. And within like a stroke of a pen in several minutes, Biden just eliminated all the savings that were supposedly going to come from that legislation. Uh, I would also point out that at a time when, you know, 60% of Americans or so think that this bill or this decision will exacerbate uh, the problem of inflation, um, two months after Biden said fighting inflation is his uh, top priority, Biden does this. I mean, you throw in the Inflation Reduction Act, he's signed into law just in the past few weeks, a trillion dollars in new spending. He is not that serious about fighting inflation. Um, as for his explanation of, ah, oh, what about the tax cuts and all that stuff? Look, it is indeed true that the process of running a federal government requires you to spend money on things that not every American is going to agree on. However, at least in theory, all of the aspects of the federal government are supposed to be in the greater good of everyone, right? The idea, you may or may not want the Pentagon to buy a particular missile system or a particular kind of weapon. In fact, you may not think we should have a Pentagon at all, but the purpose of the Pentagon and the Department of Defense is to protect you as Americans. Uh, the per, you know, we may, have, you know, a lot, some folks don't like social security, but it's there to protect people in their old age. It is, by the way, it's supplemental security income. It's not supposed to be the only thing you, you uh, rely on. That's there for that. Most federal program, you know, the Department of Agriculture, which I wrote a whole book about, you know, like the, generally you can come up with some argument of, well, this is actually meant to help everyone. It is not a targeted giveaway to one particular demographic, which is what it, this decision by the president certainly starts to look like. And Biden seems to say, well, I don't like that position. So maybe this it's OK for me to help these groups. No, that's the whole point. And look, I could live with this. Actually, I wouldn't live. I, I would hate this decision under any circumstances. But it is particularly galling because I went back and I checked what Biden said in his inaugural address where he emphasized that he would unite America. Quote, to overcome these challenges, to restore the soul and secure the future of America requires more than words. It requires the most elusive of things in a democracy, unity. 
Unity, my whole soul is in it. My whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people and uniting our nation. And it, like, it's like, okay, look, if you're going to do something that is pretty clearly a giveaway to your preferred demographics that puts the taxpayer on the hook for debts that other people voluntarily signed a contract to accept and to pay back, and that they haven't had to pay back for more than two and a half, about two and a half years now, if all of that, you don't, then spare me the whole unity shtick. Right? Don't pretend, oh, I just want to unite people. Because when you put your thumb in people's eye this way, if you take something, you know it's controversial. You know people don't like it. And you go ahead and you do it anyway on some very dubious constitutional legal authority. Then, you can, oh, then you're doing the opposite of creating unity. You are exacerbating the divisions. If America is more divided and angry now than when the day Biden was sworn into office, a big reason is the decisions he made. And my, my argument is about, you know, I want to unite the country is the same as, you know, you're not going to see helicopters flying off the embassy roof in Afghanistan. The Afghan army is better trained and better equipped than anybody else in the world. Vladimir Putin, this man cannot remain in power. Uh, inflation is transitory. You know, I, I, I have no higher priority than fighting inflation. Everything Biden says is BS. It's all nonsense. It's all whatever sounds good in the moment. And he forgets about it within a second. And I don't know if that's, you know, senility or that's just political inconvenience. But in the end, he does whatever is most convenient for him and his party and his interests at any given moment. And so at minimum, Mr. President, please spare us how you're going to unite us and how you're doing so much and you just want to get rid of the divisions and anger in this country. So well said. So well said. He is such a petty partisan. Anybody ask the most slightly challenging question, he snaps off at them like they you know, stole his lunch money or something. And he's got no patience or tolerance whatsoever for anyone even slightly disagreeing with him. It's all an act. And it always has been. Jim, yesterday... Uh, in addition to posting on Twitter the podcast like we always do, I also posted uh, the video of that exchange back in Iowa in 2020 between Senator Warren and the dad who was upset that she wanted uh, student debt forgiveness, as she put it. And he's and he's talking about how he sacrificed so his daughter didn't have to take out loans while his friend, you know, lived more lavishly. And, and now uh, he's going to have those loans forgiven. And she had no sympathy for him whatsoever. In response to posting that video, uh, I'm not going to say the person's name, but they, they re responded with a quote tweet saying, this same dad probably protests the local food pantry because he feels cheated that he buys his own groceries. And I'm thinking there to myself, well, this would be an accurate analogy if A, I was forced by law and under threat of imprisonment to stock the food pantry and the person who went to the food pantry had promised to pay back everything and donate everything back with interest. Other than that, it's totally the same. <laughs> Greg, it is is very revealing, by the way. People who say that, they're physically not holding up a sign saying, I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> but they might as well be. And one of the things is like, there's a really big distinction between things you do voluntarily and things the government has the authority and the power to make you do. There are a whole bunch of things in this life that are good to do, and we would like to see more of it. But, you know, if you don't believe that voluntary decision, like, you know, I wouldn't say go watch Clockwork Orange because it's some really ugly, intense stuff. But the entire concept of Clockwork Orange, you can read the book if you're, you know, a little more squeamish. And the gist is, if you are forced to do the right thing, is it really still the right thing? Is that still a meaningful choice? And the late P.J. O'Rourke used to say, when talking about a question of should government do something, he was an advocate for limited government. He's like, look, anybody who refuses to pay taxes 
uh, will, you know, if you don't go pay taxes, you go to jail. And people who, if you try to run away from going to jail, if you try to escape, evade arrest, to resist arrest, there's a chance they'll shoot you. So this, you know, you shouldn't really value one American versus another. It's that. So basically the idea of pretend it's your mother, pretend it's your father, pretend it's someone you care about who says, no, you know what? I'm not going to pay for that. I'm not going to pay for my taxes. And the PG O'Rourke test was, would you shoot your mother in the head to fund this? <laughs> now, obviously, don't shoot anybody in the head. Don't shoot you know, your mom. Mom's been very nice to you. Don't do that. But the idea is, what are you willing to use the power of government to do to make someone, you know, pay to pay to protect? Should be very limited, right? Protection of the country? No, I think that's, that's up there. Uh, maybe research into dread diseases? Yeah, that makes sense. Law enforcement? Yeah, I think we've got to do that. Otherwise, criminals will run wild, right? There's a certain amount of things that we can all generally agree. This is, yes, a duty of government protecting our rights. There is no other institution in society that can do this. But this uh, person on Twitter, you know, I, I know it's going to shock people that somebody was dumb on Twitter. It's, it's very unlike that site. <laughs> um, but the idea that person who really can't draw any distinction between a voluntary action and the government making you do something, uh, I think, reveals a great deal that there are certain just, you know, mental blocks they cannot get past. Well, there is some good news out there on this. Not much, but uh, even one of Obama's former economic advisors says it's like pouring gasoline on the fire, and this was a terrible idea. And other people are saying that too. Uh, Jared Golden, moderate Democratic congressman up in Maine, Tim Ryan's kind of squeamish about it because he's you know pursuing the whole populist line and trying to win the Ohio Senate race. So uh, there's a few voices out there, but it's it's going to happen, and we'll see if they even actually restart the, the requirement to pay these things at the end of the year. So I, I would note, by the way, it does say something to me that every Democrat running in a sensitive race or a tough race did not run out to say this is terrific. Uh, we'll see how it shakes out, but I think that's that's a useful indicator. Yeah, it's good to see, actually, in a lot of different ways. So, Jim, uh, maybe a good martini tomorrow, at least to be Friday. <laughs> see you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a huge help to us. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to tell it is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Remember Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, the short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday and join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. New York Congresswoman Claudia Tenney says the January 6th commission is a disgrace to her and anyone who cares about the Constitution. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Congresswoman Tenney also blasts Liz Cheney and Mitch McConnell for trashing their own party. And I'll tell you about the latest Biden administration lie on Afghanistan. Don't miss it. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.